Welcome to A Load of BS with me, Daniel Ross. My guest today is Dr. Grace Laudan, Associate Professor at the London School of Economics in the Department of Psychological and Behavioural Science. She's also the founding director there of the Inclusion Initiative, which focuses on bringing together teaching, research and practice to build more inclusive work environments. She's also written a book which I personally took huge value from. It's called Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Career You Want which uses behavioural science to give really practical advice about, amongst other things, how to ask for a pay rise, get promoted and change your career. So today we'll talk about her book, her work at the Inclusion Initiative, the pipeline problem, COVID's mass resignation and mixed dating experiences. Now, if you haven't done so already, please take a moment now to subscribe or follow me wherever you listen to your podcast. Just press that button on your app. Otherwise, please enjoy the show. Grace, welcome to A Load of BS. I'm delighted you're here today with me. Thank you, Daniel. I'm very excited to be here. Fantastic. Now, last year, you published the book Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build a Career You Want, which uses behavioral science to give really practical advice to people about, amongst other things, how to ask for pay rises, get promoted and change careers. And I suppose if you're going to write a book about career progression, these seem to me three questions we care about rather a lot. I mean, have I summarized the headlines of the book reasonably well, at least? Absolutely. I would add one thing that it's really about getting people to think bigger about their future and really embedding habit in the spirit of behavioral science so that they end up where they are. But definitely pay promotions and all that extrinsic stuff is covered in the book as well. Fantastic. So let's cut to the chase and talk about Firstly, what most of us care too much about, and that's money. Now, economically, it looks like we're entering rather a long recession. Interest rates are higher. Inflation is rising. And so all our pay packets are being stretched further. So a question on many people's minds, is this a good time to ask for a pay rise? I think it depends where you are. So I think if you're in a big corporate company that's listed on the stock exchange, it absolutely is a good time to ask for a pay rise. They're doing incredibly well despite shrinking share price for the most part, particularly finance, tech, oil, gas, education, the sector that I'm in. I think that there's some discussion among government that people shouldn't be asking for pay rises because of this problem that hyperinflation that happened kind of three decades ago when employers responded by giving people more money. So the first thing I'd say is that we're nowhere near that hyperinflation point, which is 15% increase in wages. Most of us are on about 3%. But the second, I think here in the UK, the government isn't really doing a great job of taking care of people who can't ask for a pay rise. So I would say to anybody, ask for a pay rise. If you have more than you need, give generously to charities that you know distribute at this point. So yes, for some people, no for others. And for those that aren't, I think that we need to start taking care of each other a bit better. No, for sure. But how do we do it? Are there tactics? Are there techniques to have a successful outcome when we're thinking about asking for a pay rise? Yeah. So, I mean, the people who listen to your podcast will have heard of the peak end effect, where when we're having conversations, people tend to pay attention to two moments of it, somewhere right in the middle and somewhere right towards the end. And what's really interesting about pay rises, if you actually analyze them in kind of big data or big companies or even using people's self-report, is that it isn't actually what the person has accomplished that matters, but it's the story that they tell. So I encourage people to get their narrative right. Like You do have to be competent. You do have to work hard. But when it comes to the ask, get the narrative right. 
and make sure that you have that peak end. So what was the one thing that you did in the last year that really knocked it out of the park? And then in the last part of it, what is the one thing that you're going to do next year that illustrates your potential? Because don't forget, people do get pay rises based on potential. And that is the best tactic that you have for getting a pay rise. And I would also say leverage on narrative throughout the year. So don't wait for that one moment to tell your boss who's probably already made up their mind where the money is actually going. During the year, put that advice into the conversation. So use priming to your advantage. Now, that makes a lot of sense. Now, of course, beyond storytelling, running through every chapter of Think Big, by the way, like any academic writing should do, this is also rather a personal memoir. It's unusually biographical, you know, the story of your Irish upbringing, your family, education and career weaves its gentle way throughout. So I wonder, putting yourself at the centre, warts and all, firstly, it makes it very relatable. But was this a deliberate writing style? No, in the beginning, that wasn't in the book. So it was a very dry behavioural science book that had kind of the nuts and bolts of getting people to do more about their career. And the editor basically said, you know, this book could have been written by anybody. You need to put yourself into the book. And it was hard for me, to be very honest with you, to try to kind of figure out how to write a narrative that wouldn't bore people to tears about my life. Because, you know, I've had, I guess, not a usual path to where I am today, but not the most exciting of lives for people to read about. But I'm glad I did it because actually now this proves the point, I guess, that narrative trumps data. Now, when I get emails from people, it's often to say, oh, I really identify where you were in that point of your life. And it's kind of made me consider doing that a bit more and being a bit more open about myself than I would have been in the past. Now, for sure, and out of interest, I mean, what more have you learned about yourself through the process of writing the book? I mean, have you made any new lifestyle adjustments through the process? Yeah, I mean, so for me, the whole book was an experiment. The people who write in behavioral science are very smart people, but they're not exactly original when it comes to samples that they use. So very often the type of samples they're looking at are students in universities, people who happen to be in their periphery and very easy to access. And of course, that might be someone who represents me because I'm quite different to those people, as will be a lot of your listeners. So every single thing that was in the book, I experimented with on myself. And I'm quite open and say that some of these things worked for me and some of the things don't. So I'm giving you the list of what I would call the hard science evidence, but you yourself need to do the evaluation. So I've learned an incredible lot, actually, about what motivates me, what's likely to get me out of bed in the morning to do exercise, what's likely to get me off track. And, you know, I'm kind of a work in progress. Again and again, I need to go back and say, actually, I'm not being so productive in these last couple of months. What do I need to do differently? Yeah, I mean, I sympathize with you. There is definitely a behavioral science experimentation bias towards the cafes of Harvard, Stanford and MIT, exploring all psychological ticks of their students, trying to understand their preferences and so on. But I mean, I certainly found that, you know, the admission of your own blind spot bias in still succumbing, for example, to your phone addiction, which you talk about a bit, and all its myriad sins. I mean, talking about phone addiction is one thing. It then uncovers all sorts of other problems. I found it very comforting, if only to remind myself how much time I surely waste. But I mean, since reading the book, I mean, one thing that I've certainly made an effort to do is to declutter my workspace, which I think is a positive. I should add that my office has yellow wallpaper, which is where I'm sitting right now as we speak. And you referenced some research which suggests, at least, blue surroundings encourage creativity and red ones the competitive spirit. I wonder whether there are any papers on my lemon citrus finish in terms of likely effect on my productivity. I haven't seen one, but I feel we should do it. I, I'm looking at it and it looks re- it looks like a really nice atmosphere to be in. So I think whatever, I wouldn't have chosen it myself. But now that I see it on a wall, I could be tempted. 
Yeah, I think there, there could be a, a good post-rationalization there. I certainly didn't paint the room with working in mind, as many of us have adapted to new workspaces in the last few years without quite thinking we'd be spending quite as much time in our homes as we have done. Now, a leitmotif of the book is that small changes action regularly have disproportionate effects on our life outcomes. I wonder whether you can bring that idea to life, perhaps from your own experience. Yeah, so I mean, if you kind of think about what you're doing today and what you do as a habit over the week is going to be who you are in five years, it really puts you in a place of thinking about how am I spending my time in any one week? And if I think back to myself five years ago, I was writing the proposal for the book that we're talking about now, right? So I basically kind of said to myself, I'd like to write a book. I didn't want it to be an academic book. I wanted it to be more popular nonfiction. And I had to set about learning how to do that because it wasn't in my natural skill sets. I'm an academic and, you know, inherently I tend to write in quite a boring fashion. So I absolutely spent, and 90 minutes a week is the minimum I think anybody should spend on investing in themselves in the future. And I absolutely did spend a minimum of, of 90 minutes a week, sometimes just 90 minutes a week always working on the book. And that was, you know, through meeting people who had written books beforehand so I could learn from them, which was really important. You know, I met some amazing people and have gotten some amazing advice about how to actually go about writing it, to reading papers, which there was lots and lots of papers that I read, to doing the actual writing itself. And I think had I not done that consistent habit, because I have a full-time job, it never would have got done. It would have just been kind of a dream that I had for myself. And if I think about where I'm going to be in the next five years, I absolutely applied the same thing. You know, 90 minutes a week is set aside for something that is a bit risky. I'm not sure if it'll pay off, but if it does, I think I'd be really happy and possibly would be employable to write a book called Think Bigger, which would be quite exciting for me. <laughs> right, exactly. The sequel is proposed. But I think the point there is also is that to allow for any real change, one needs a medium term horizon. And I think this goes back to our sort of short term bias. We find it very hard to visualize our future selves. It's far yeah. easier. Well, we seek immediate gratification. Whereas, you know, the point you're trying to make is that one needs to have consistent, small incremental steps to any meaningful goal. And if you do that with some persistence and resilience, you give yourself a far better chance of getting there. Yeah. And a good exercise as a starting point is to look back over the previous five years and write down all the major changes that happened in your life. And most of us will have had many major changes, some in our control, some out of our control. But it's a good way to demonstrate, actually, in the medium term, huge things can happen in your life, both in your control and out of your control. So what would happen in the next five years if you took more control over that? And I think the consistency key is for people like me who can't afford to quit their job. You know, you have bills to pay, you have responsibilities beyond yourself, but nonetheless, you want to do something slightly different to what your day job gets you to do. And I'm not, not a fan of people who say quit your job because I think it's very irresponsible. We've just talked about the cost of living crisis. But I do think having those ambitions in the future can allow you quit your job once you have that safety net in place. Yeah, for sure. And just to build on this leitmotif, it's brought to life by, may I call it, your conspirator and fellow protagonist, Me Plus, in the book. Now, who is Me Plus? So Me Plus is the idea of your future self. So you think about what if it all worked out and you take away the constraints. That, you know, I don't have enough money. I have caring responsibilities. I don't have enough time. I'm not good enough. I don't have the skills. You take away all of those constraints and you just think about what if it all worked out for you? And once that's in place, you get a visual of the person, which kind of serves two purposes. So the first is that it's been shown that if you can visualize your future self, that is much more likely to get you to show up for them and do the 19 minutes and kind of put in the time. But the second, which is really key to the book, is that if you can visualize what you want to be in the future 
you can then get a really good idea of what the tasks you'll do on a day-to-day basis are. And I think that's a really key thing for people when they're choosing what to do and invest time in because very often we just follow something like oh this this is going to help me earn lots of money or this feels like it might be kind of glamorous or this feels like I might be happy because I get to help people but people don't really get into the tasks of the job what I don't want is for people to invest all this time and then turn up and say actually this job isn't for me at all I don't know what I was thinking I was blinded by a tv series that I saw you know 10 years ago and that was the role model that I chose it's really interesting I, I teach executive students and I coach some executives now and and they often have a really bad idea of what their next role will actually be in terms of tasks. So they have a title, they have the status in mind, they have the income in mind, what they're going to ask for. But ultimately, if you think about what our life is, it's doing tasks. And if we don't find, you know, kind of some joy or some contentment in the process, it's going to be quite a miserable existence to always be kind of reaching for jobs that we don't necessarily want. Yeah, I think, I mean, I suffer from this as well, but there is a huge need for a lot of us to strip away ego status, comparison, conventional wisdoms in terms of how we think about what we want versus what I think what you get at in the book, which is really digging that bit deep into really kind of understanding what one's sort of strengths, interests and lifestyle preferences are Absolutely. to really get towards, you know, how, I mean, and then you talk about, of course, the greatest resource that we have is time and that's finite. And that's why the, the older one gets also, the more one realizes or under, understands its opportunity cost. Let me ask you this. I think one of the central cognitive biases that you address in the book, which holds us back from B+, is loss aversion, or indeed what you call anticipatory loss aversion, which is our disproportionate fear of losses versus equivalent gains. So when it comes to career, therefore, you know, we may start foregoing opportunities for fear of failure, embarrassment, or perceived reputational risk. So I want to ask you, you know, how do we fight this loss aversion in these sorts of contexts? And so avoid, you know, life passing us by, or let me, I could put it in layman's terms, how do we convince ourselves to take a few more risks? I mean, it, I just made loss aversion always fascinates me when people bring it up, because the idea that Anticipation is an experience in itself, has been shown many times in behavioral science literature. You know, marketers really exploit this when they're selling holidays and when they're selling other things to us. But the same thing goes if I'm imagining myself putting my hat in the ring to pitch for funding as an entrepreneur, putting my hat in the ring to get a partner theatre, putting my hat in the ring to get a promotion, that I'm absolutely going to anticipate how it will feel if I get it versus how if I feel if I don't. And it's been shown that people overfocus on not getting things. So they tend to kind of think of themselves as much more unlucky when they're anticipating these kind of big moments. But what's even more fascinating is actually if the loss happened to somebody, it impacts on them much less than the anticipation does because people are so resilient. And I think the first thing to say is for anybody who's kind of listening and who can recognize themselves in anticipatory loss aversion, you're not going to get resilient to feeling losses unless you experience losses, you know? So in some ways, putting yourself forward for the promotion, realizing it isn't as bad as what it seems that there's other opportunities open to you is really, really important. The second thing I say is that, you know, really reminding yourself that the the probability of succeeding is always positive. So people who have a really good attitude to loss aversion will probably just end up much more successful, even if they're not necessarily good, even if they're mediocre, actually, because they do actually put their hat in the ring. But I think the third thing that has been shown to work is to really work on belief and self-belief. And what's kind of fascinating in this literature is that it can be hard for me to build self-belief in myself if I'm not necessarily feeling good about myself. But having somebody believe in you that isn't you, like a parent, a teacher, somebody at university, an advocate in your job, 
can actually be just as effective as you believing in yourself. So I think those three things, you know, if you're willing to have a battle with your own will, remind yourself the probability is always positive. Remind yourself that you'll get resilient by having losses. I mean, there's loads of cliche quotes from big successful tech people that talk about failure and losses being part of the journey. And that absolutely is true. But I think the last that if you can see yourself doing that, get yourself a hype body, get yourself somebody who'll say, this is something you should go for. Get yourself an advocate and do lean on them. And eventually the confidence to go forward with risk will come. Yeah. And research shows that, you know, men tend to be less loss averse than women, which I think is intuitively unsurprising. But you highlighted some research which puts this down in part to the different dating experiences of the sexes, which I never thought of that. I mean, what's what's going on there? I will caveat that that I said I've always had a hunch, but I've never been able to test it. But I'm glad you brought it up. Oh, it's a hunch. I think it is- ah. It's a hunch. Yeah, yeah. So I haven't seen any. So there's lots of research to tell us that little boys are much less risk averse than girls, but it all comes through sports and it comes through the classroom. It doesn't come through dating. I haven't seen that paper, but I always had this hunch that when I was younger, at least times are changing, but they haven't changed so much that this still won't hold true. Boys did do more of the asking on dates as compared to girls. But as part of young dating, you get rejected an incredible amount if you're a young boy. So the sheer act of getting that rejection teaches the little boy, firstly, if there's more fish in the sea, which is a good lesson. But secondly, that they're resilient to being told no. And then, you know, the same kind of, it's like a transferable skill. When I go into my career, if I'm asking for an opportunity or I'm asking for promotion, if I'm asking for funding, if I'm told no, it's not the end of the world. There are always more fish in the sea. But if there's anyone listening who can actually test that, I, I would love to see that paper. Well, I can give you sample size one. I think there's definitely something in it. <laughs> um, Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, so there, there, there's a start. Now, of course, the book is full of all this sort of tangible, actionable advice, but you also rightly acknowledge that effort alone is often not enough. Luck, of course, plays its part. I mean, where do you see the balance between luck and effort? And how do we start to increase the likelihood that big and exciting opportunities come our way? I mean, it's hard to disentangle it. I think when you're starting off early in your career, a lot of it is down to luck. And by luck, I don't mean something dropping on your head from the sky. I mean, who happens to be in your network? Who is able to give you access to opportunities? And who is able to kind of give you advice when you actually get stuck? And I think without those networks, it is actually quite hard in the beginning. It gets easier as you get more senior because you won't end up getting further along in your career. There's a selection bias unless you actually build out those networks in some ways. So I always encourage people to make their own luck and to really start establishing their networks quite early. But the second thing I always encourage people to do is because I made a rush for my own back by saying this like five or six years ago before the book was out in companies. And then people would ask me for things. They say, oh, can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? And I'm a giving person, but I only have so many hours in the day. So I think you need to always imagine your network as something actually that you are invested in in the same way as your relationships with your friends and your family. They're not just there to give you stuff. You know, this isn't for the Christmas. You have to invest in it. You have to invest time and don't be impatient with it. And I think that's why we often feel that we get lucky. Like if I think about some of the opportunities I've got in the last weeks or the last year, it's being people who were on the periphery of my network or connected to my network in some way who thought actually Grace would be good for doing this. I'm going to ask her. And then they reach out and it feels like it's out of the blue. But if I sit back and think about it, I can think, oh, 
somebody in my network has recommended me for this. So making your own luck is absolutely about kind of paying attention to the people who you have around you, making sure the people who you have around you aren't too much like you, which is a mistake that a lot of people make. They like to be kind of feeling like they're in a tribe or feeling like they're in affinity all the time. And if you just stick to people like you, they'll just see the world the same as you. They'll see the same opportunities to you. They'll open the same doors that you can for yourself. So again, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of diversity, as people might know if, if they've heard of me making sure that in your network there's diversity it not just benefits you but it benefits other people as well now that makes a lot of sense of course by the way you do give an open invitation to readers to contact you to discuss their own challenges i wondered whether many <laughs> many have taken you up have taken you up on it many very more than i was ex- well i think the book sold much better than i was expecting and it also sold in a lot of other countries where there's a much bigger population than the uk so yes and, and i do answer them but it, it might be slower than people want but they always get an answer it's weeks not days unfortunately now but they always get an answer yes perhaps in hindsight that would have been a useful caveat under your email address in brackets <laughs> weeks not days manage expectations when i wrote it i was just imagining that i'd have like 10 people who might like the book so I thought it would be really easy and it might be kind of cool to actually get to meet them, assuming that one of them will be an aunt of mine or something. But yeah, it's been a challenge. And some of the challenges that people have haven't been ones that I've thought about, but I've connected people with other folk as well who've been able to help them. So I think it was the right thing in hindsight. For sure. I mean, I think it's part of your relatability. I mean, like with all good writers, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you hope that you get to know them a little, even without meeting them by the end. And I think you leaving your contact details and putting that invitation out there felt very much part of your personality. From my experience, outside of this luck versus effort question, the predominant blocker to life progress are time sinkers, as you call them, or those habits that grow like weeds in our brain or disrupt our flow. Addictions which are within our control, but are just sort of desperately hard to wean oneself off. I wonder, despite what you wrote in the book, what are your latest distractions and how are you avoiding them consistently? So, I mean, my social media now is managed by somebody else, which was a huge thing for me, to be honest, because when the book came out, I felt pressure to be on social media and to answer comments. And I think not having to do that has been huge. And I have actually managed to switch off. I'm really ashamed to say my biggest battle is still on emails. And I've the, the email that's in the book is my personal email. But now at LSE, if you go onto the website, it's not my personal email anymore. So anyone who doesn't buy the book and just comes through the website goes to an email account that's managed by someone else. And again, it's just, there's something about me not being able to sleep at night when my inbox isn't zero. So very often people will get very quick answers to me if I can answer their question. But I've been failing at that and it has been keeping me up at night. But at the moment, I only check emails on one device, which is absolutely, and I will tell you, which is killing me this today, I left it on the plane in Heathrow yesterday. So I don't know if my emails are gone forever, which is killing me. So I haven't checked them this morning, which is quite bad. Yeah. So it's same battles that are in the book. And I think that's part of the kind of thing about self-growth is that once we recognize our weaknesses, just if you had, you know, a sugar addiction or an alcohol addiction or you're addicted to nicotine, you're not going to be able to kind of cure yourself in the way that you might want to. It's going to be constant work and to stop yourself slipping into old habits. But isn't the anticipation of what's to come in your inbox just so damn exciting? I mean, just keeping you on tenterhooks, although there's this frustration, but once you finally get the device back, all those new messages which you can read all at once. Yeah, 
I mean, I, I wish people sent me more exciting messages, to be very well, honest. Well, it's true. Aside from the readers of Think Big, because again, I'm an academic, I get a lot of dull emails, but yes, it would be interesting. And I think always my lesson, because I managed to switch off for kind of weeks now rather than kind of hours, and always my lesson when I open it is firstly, it's not very exciting as I imagined it might be, but secondly, there's never anything urgent. And problems resolve themselves, Daniel, as well. I think problems do resolve themselves. Yes, we are far more dispensable than we'd ever like to think. And I hope you would be proud of me, actually, because it's uh, as inspired by the book. For the first time ever, I turned my phone off an hour before bedtime last night, put it in another room. And, you know, I woke up this morning and the world seemed okay. And that's much better for your melatonin as well. So all of the sleep researchers who I consume talk about, you know, the idea of getting enough melatonin while you sleep, being in a darker room, being without screen time. So, yeah, you have health benefits that you haven't even realized yet. You're going to live longer now, which is fantastic. Oh, well, good. There we are. I feel feel good already for a Monday morning. We may come back to the book, but I just want to maybe just switch focus for a moment. Something you also, you touched on about inclusivity and your work at the Inclusion Initiative, where you are a founding director. This is a research centre at the LSE, which aims to use behavioural science to help firms create more inclusive cultures. And I want to understand the behavioural science here. But firstly, let me ask you, what do inclusive and diverse mean for TII? So we focus mostly on inclusion. We essentially say inclusion is where a manager or a leader is very cognizant of who's sitting around the table and making sure that they get equal opportunities, visibility and voice. And also that they're cognizant of the diversity that's missing from the table and they take steps in the recruitment process to address it. And and with that definition, what we're really talking about is cognitive diversity. So the idea that you have people who do bring it, so you need core skill competency. So obviously, if I'm a doctor, there needs to be some core skills there. But you also need to have people who see the world differently because they'll see risks differently. They'll see costs and benefits differently. So all of our work is really about firstly helping leaders to overcome their own biases, to overcome other obstacles that might actually stop them leading inclusively. And we're interested in that not from a HR perspective, but from the leader perspective. So leaders who have ego, who want to be high status is absolutely perfect because they should be the ones who want to leverage cognitive diversity within their teams. The second thing that we're thinking about is measuring it. So measuring what inclusive leadership and inclusive cultures look like both within firms and across firms and across firms is the most interesting thing for me because if we succeed we'll be able to change the direction of where shareholders put their money and also customers and then the last thing we do in companies is old-fashioned experiments so we have some ideas about what might work to improve inclusive leadership and improve company culture but very often the companies have their own ideas and what we then offer is this kind of evaluation bit so kind of very classic experimental behavioral science where they're pulling a lever they expect there to be a change and then we ask did the change actually happen and try to think about if it didn't happen is it something to do with the context and what they should actually do next and to be honest it's been the most challenging part of my career but also been the most interesting we started with finance but now we work with tech companies we work with manufacturing retail services i think energy soon it's been really exciting So with all this variety, are you able to use benchmarks to compare firms' policies and outcomes? How do you think about that? So within firms and interventions, that's absolutely impossible because everybody firstly does different interventions and others, when they do interventions, they roll them out differently as well. So the quality will vary. So those two things make it impossible to do benchmarking in that way. And that's why what we wanted to get into was measuring, actually. So measuring within firms and measuring outside firms. So we basically say, 
this is how you roll out an intervention. This is how you actually measure it. And please let us know what the measurement actually is. And that's kind of starting to happen now, which is really exciting. And I think then we'll be able to do something in the spirit of what you described. But until then, I've basically settled on, okay, firms are going to do their own interventions anyway. Every person who manages people or who's in HR wants to bring their own ideas to the job. Let's give them the tools so that they know it's working. So at least then we might know why something is working in one firm versus another, but we will have that number of how inclusive firms actually are. Can you highlight whether from your own work and research or more generally, which firms are doing this really well? Who do you admire? Who are you looking up to? Who are the case studies, the benchmarks, if you like, for this work? So I think the first thing is that there's no gold star across a firm. I think within parts of the recruitment process, within parts of leadership, some firms are doing better than others. So if I think about people who are doing really well with respect to inclusive leadership and equipping their leaders, I would think about Ericsson. So they have a whole inclusive leadership program and their leaders are fully supportive with that. If I think about who's doing really well in the recruitment process, I would think about Meta. So Meta are now doing recruitment that doesn't involve universities at all. They basically look at gamers and they will advertise to gamers who play a game in a certain way, which really breaks down these kind of social mobility walls that I worry about. If I think about people who are doing incredibly well for hybrid working, I think about City. So Citibank, as opposed to Goldman Sachs and a lot of the other investment banks, have made the decision to allow hybrid working, which means that they're now very attractive to people who do need that element of flexibility, particularly women. So within different types of companies, there's definitely best in class with certain things that they're doing. But overall, I think that there's a lot of learning that can still happen across companies and across sector. Yeah. And when we hear of the pipeline problem in this diversity inclusion debate, the theory that diversity initiatives are failing because there simply aren't enough skilled members of underrepresented groups out there, whether that's women, LGBTQ plus people, people of colour, disabled people. In other words, there's, you know, it's an inability to diversify. It's not a failure of a company's culture, it's hiring process. Its position is a failure on the part of underrepresented groups to achieve the appropriate skills for those open roles. I mean, is that purely a myth hiding biases baked into our organisations, or is there any truth in that at all? So it's a narrative, and the narrative is really harmful. It is true there are kinks in the hose pipes where women select different jobs as compared to men, and people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds choose different types of jobs as compared to those who aren't, that have nothing to do with preferences. So I think that part is true. There are these kinks. But it isn't the be-all and end-all. And when people say that, it basically means that they're pushing the responsibility onto someone else. And there's kinks across the hose everywhere. One of the kinks now is thanks to this narrative. So if you can imagine, for example, that you are interviewing people for a job, and there's a kink in the hose pipe. You're interviewing 10 people, two are women and eight are men. Firstly, the odds are stacked up against the woman because of the representativeness heuristic. But if you've already bought into the narrative that the pipeline of women is thinner, you're much less likely to hire a woman. So I think challenging that is really, really important. I think the second thing is that within companies, the idea that if I didn't study something when I'm 18 to 22, I don't deserve to be in a role that's of a particular type is actually bonkers. And I think what's really interesting is that you would think politics and academia would be the first to really kind of test against these wars, but it isn't. It's actually in finance where they're now bringing people onto the trading floor who show they have an aptitude for it and an interest in it and giving them two years, even when they're older and they've done a different career in that company. They're going into schools where people aren't necessarily interested in studying something in particular and trying to get them interested in careers that are really high income. And again, that's 
addressing the kinks in the hose pipe straight away. And what worries me for some with some companies, which I won't name, but you can actually just look at the government and figure out, oh, this is here, is we end up with these really weird pyramids when we really hold this narrative. So if I fundamentally believe that there's a hose pipe problem for women, it basically means that I'm probably only going to hire women at the very, very bottom of the pipeline. And you're going to end up with these weird hierarchies with different types of people at different parts of the pyramid, which is actually where we are now that we cling to that narrative. So very long way to answer a question. There is a kink in the hose pipe. There are problems that need to be addressed both upstream and downstream. But anyone who says that to me, it's an excuse. They need to search further. They need to be more imaginative like Meta is with their recruitment process. And yeah, I think that they, they need to put in more effort to find people who are diverse because it is to the benefit of their organization. Yeah. What about COVID and the fallout of the pandemic? Has that taught us anything about hiring and employment biases? I wonder whether some groups have been more disadvantaged from the fallout than others. So I think we don't know. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, there was this kind of big discussion about the great resignation. And I always said to people, it's not in the data. So we don't see it in the data. It looks to me that there's a great reshuffle. The thing that we have seen in the data, which I think is really fascinating, is that hybrid working and these kind of flexible working constraints is now, as you would expect, I'm an economist, so I always bring it back to economics, is an amenity. Um, Basically, so people are selecting it in the same way that they would select a job based on status and based on some other characteristics. We do see types of people now working in particular companies. So those types of people who really valued flexible hybrid working are selecting to work in the companies within sectors that offer that. Those who don't are selecting to go elsewhere. And then you can think about what does this mean then when you have people like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and David Solomon saying you have to be in nine to five. Well, they're probably going to get what they want because they pay high enough wages. There's a high enough compensating differential that there'll be some people who want to be in the office nine to five. So I don't worry about their pipeline, but they will suffer with diversity because they're not leaving the immunity open that some people now absolutely want. And I think that's the one thing from the COVID-19 pandemic is that people learn more about their preferences when it comes to flexible working. And some people decided they absolutely wanted it. Let's just go back to the so-called great resignation, which is a term in a coin to describe people you know, leaving and switching jobs en masse as a result of COVID. And then there's been a debate, which is to present this as an opportunity to demand more inclusive workspace. I mean, from my reading, there are sort of various interpretations of this resignation, some which I think slide into like the, the great regret as both employees and employers perhaps regret making some rather hasty quitting and hiring these decisions. But I think it's not totally clear. But do you feel nevertheless that this resignation has presenting us with an opportunity to drive greater inclusivity? I think in some firms. So I think some firms have really lent in towards inclusion. And I think some firms have lent away from it. And I think they've lent away from it because they really want now to take So I think what happened during the COVID-19 pandemic and particularly towards the end for professional workers is that professional workers got more power. So they were able to demand more things and their employers actually listened to them because they have become open to actively listening during COVID. I think now that the cost of living crisis is happening, activism is up, people are worried about the great resignation, which even though I'm not worried about it for the economy as a whole, within companies, you're right to be worried because people are moving and they're, you know, once someone quits, there are actually hiring costs that are quite significant. So I think with all that mind, there are some employers who are pushing back and trying to take control over their employees. And that doesn't seem to be going so well for them at the moment. So it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. But I'm guessing in this transition phase, we'll see more activism, more people moving. And ultimately, the employers who get it right with respect to the future of work 
And I think it's not even the future of work that we're talking about now. I think it's a future of work where we have virtual reality campuses, where we have better technology that allows some of the things that we need to be on site for now to be done remotely. I think when we get there, the companies who've really handled this well will be the ones who have the better workforces. And we'll see that eventually through their innovation. I mean, thinking about inclusion from a gender perspective, I mean, how have you managed your career path as a female in a very male-dominated industry? How have you overcome biases? I feel you should probably ask my colleagues that. So I think sometimes very well and sometimes sometimes very badly. I mean, I think in some ways, you know, it's been a challenge. I've been the only person in computer science, even in behavioral science now, there isn't that many women. And actually at the NSC, there isn't one behavioral scientist in my department who isn't an assistant professor. So I'm the only associate professor. And that is a weird kind of place to be. But I think it's always trying to kind of carve your own. So I think that there's kind of two things. There's being confident in what you're offering. And I'm really lucky that I have a lot of kind of extra things outside in government and companies that makes me kind of value that's quite unique. And I think the second thing is having the confidence to speak up. And there are some times, and I will be quite honest about it, where I rationally decide like I'm not going to bother with this. You know, there's no point. This decision has already been made. So I don't necessarily get involved. But then other times I do. So it's definitely a journey. I think it's one, you know, you kind of talk about kinks in the hose pipe. I think it's one that I do wish sometimes could be a bit smoother. I mean, when you read about continuing sexism in the workplace, whether it's the ongoing litany of government scandals like you know that Mail on Sunday's report about Angela Rayner channeling her Sharon Stone in basic instinct yeah. to distract the Prime Minister. Or then there was a quotation I saw from City Investors referring to Amanda Blunk, who's the CEO of Aviva, as, quote, not the man for the job. I mean, yeah. how does all that make you feel? Well, in both cases, it really irritates me because I know both women, actually. I know Amanda better than Angela, but I do know both women. And you can see the challenges that they go up against. Both of them handled it incredibly well, I thought, actually. Much better than I would. I would have been cursing, to be honest, probably in public. Amanda handled it incredibly well by basically coming out with a statement saying that this isn't something that she's really going to kind of pay attention to. The chairperson as well did actually correct them at the very end of it. I think Angela was really, really open about the challenges that she has, not just as a woman, but as a working class woman in politics, and that this was a really kind of horrible moment for her. And I will say, you know, it was for me, I think it was quite clear that what happened to Angela Rayner was something that was used to distract from all the other things that were happening in the Conservative Party. I do think what happened to Amanda Blanc is just the shareholder who thinks that their voice should be heard, even though what they're saying is actually sexist. In some ways, for me, that's less problematic than the first one, which I think did was there to kind of discredit her within politics by people who are at the same level as her. For me, that was more worrying. But both women handled it amazingly. And frankly, we shouldn't really spend too much of our lives thinking about what the Daily Mail or the Mail on Sunday publishes or seeks to publish without wanting to <laughs> become political, <laughs> but when should I think give it generally fairly short shrift. There is... This sort of challenge, because I think about the sort of work that the Inclusivity Initiative is doing at the macro level. And of course, it's a great example for women facing inequality today in their job or in their aspirations. But nevertheless, on the ground today, I think it's just worth maybe highlighting a few techniques or practices, tips that can empower them. For women listening to this, we're thinking, well, actually, you know, I'm up against it. And it's just a damn sight harder to land the dream job than it is for men, for example. And so how do you think about that? I always hate the term empower women because I think women are empowered. They just bump up against walls. So it's like having a car that has a really good engine and it's going along and you crash into a wall. I mean, I think the first thing is to make sure that you have opportunities, visibility and voice. So 
I think the problem for everybody, and I think introvert men really suffer from this as well, actually. But I think the problem for everybody is that we rely on one or two people within an organization to give us access to opportunities, visibility and voice. We expect it to happen because you expect the world to be fair. And then when it doesn't happen, you can feel incredibly stuck. So I think the first thing for women to ask themselves is, do you get equal opportunities, visibility and voice? And if you're not, do you need to move in order to get that? And I really hate saying that because when I teach another side of inclusion within organizations, I talk about tipping. So unless women stay and actually kind of fight their ground within organizations, you'll never get tipping where the culture actually changes. But having spoken to a lot of people who have hit the kind of brick wall, it becomes apparent that there is a particular point where their mental health and their well-being can't take any more of it, actually. And they do need to move somewhere else in order to kind of move beyond it. So for me, it always comes down to opportunities, visibility and voice. And the second thing is a lot of organizations, when they, for culture change, they rely on compliance-based mechanisms. So they rely on publishing fair pay. They rely on publishing promotions criteria so it gets to fair. So for people who are really struggling, the organizations and struggling to move, they should leverage that compliance-based approach and basically say, look, I don't think things are fair for me. So help me out here. Let's make things more transparent for me so I can start seeing things from your point of view and you can start seeing things from mine. And I know a lot of people who've leveraged that very successfully that they've essentially gotten a list of things that they need to do to get to the next promotion or to get the next big opportunity. And they've gone and done them. Sometimes it feels unfair because it feels like it's more than other people who are in their periphery, including men, but they've gone and done them and they've gotten to the next stage. So we all want to be liked and, and loved in, in work, but I think sometimes you need to move yourself from culture phase into a compliance phase where you take care of your career through forcing people to give you more transparency over it. Well, of course, you mentioned well-being, which I think is the other major workplace theme of our time now. You know, well-being culture, certainly the forefront of our attention in the last two years. And I'm certainly, if I think about my work and the various projects I've been involved with over the last few years, I've observed, you know, an array of tactics and nudges to improve things like, you know, productivity, innovation, task efficiency. You know, you talk about meeting inefficiency in the book, for example, introducing shorter meeting times or even no meeting days so work isn't interrupted or changing the work environment for those of us now starting to go back to work like providing kitchen or relaxation spaces which can encourage greater communication and greater sort of sense of community i wonder whether all my anecdote sort of resonates with some of your research and what and what you're seeing in terms of other sort of positive well-being interventions so it's interesting. So I have an interesting take on well-being in the workplace. So I don't think that employers should really focus on maximizing well-being in the workplace. I think it's too tricky. I think that people, when they get to a certain level of well-being, what will actually make them happier in work is personal. By making choices over that and by personalizing it, you're choosing one type of worker versus the other. But I think what they absolutely need to do is minimize ill-being, so the opposite side of it. So take this like the NHS, where the NHS offer you a certain level of healthcare. We can argue about whether or not it's sufficient. I think that they do a great job and are under a lot of pressure, could do with some more funding. But if they got the funding, the service that they want to provide, I think is the absolute perfect level for the UK. And then everything else is personal. So if I want to kind of top up my own health in a certain way, if I want to use preventative measures and go for a run, if I want to eat greens, that's up to me. Or if I want to wait until I have a catastrophe and pay for private care, that's up to me. And I feel it's the same with well-being at work, that a lot of the happiness researchers, what they're really doing is they're identifying effects that move us from, you know, on, on a happiness scale from 7 to 7.5. I think that has nothing to do with an employer. And for equity, because 
different people will take different things to move them that nudge. It's just too effortful. But what the employer must do is provide a workplace that is safe, that it's safe from harassment, it's safe from bullying. It's a nice place to go. People feel comfortable. They feel like they belong in their team and can contribute, but aren't necessarily a family member or aren't even necessarily feeling as part of the community. But when they walk in those walls, everybody is respected. And I think that's certainly different from what a lot of people are talking about these days. But I think it's a necessity because if we over-focus on happiness in the workplace, I think we get ourselves into a place where we're being very, very paternalistic. And I was actually asked by a CEO of a big um, supermarket company to come and help his workers become happier. And, and I declined because I said, look, I think that's going to be personal. I think you should pay them better. These are the amenities that I think you should give them now. If they have those available to them, I think you'll see the happiness of your workers increasing. Yeah, maybe your beanbag table tennis culture is far too generic. And I think what you say <laughs> is very clarifying and it needs to be more personal touches rather than just, you know, making sort of superficial changes to, to an office yeah. environment. That makes a lot of sense to me. Now, I'm going to ask you one last question before we move to the quick fire. And I'm, because I'm, I'm always curious about the little routines that make up the lives of successful, interesting people. There is the cliche of the fast paced CEO who rises at dawn meditates on the treadmill with, you know, matcha tea and porridge oats on intravenous drip as Siri reads out their emails. <laughs> so let me ask you, you know, if you ever read the, the Sunday Times magazine, Life in the Day, it's that sort of thing. Tim Cook, who rises at 4.30am and starts sending emails to his uh, subordinates. It sounds dreadful. But how do you start and end your day? What are your morning and evening routines? I'm writing a new book now and I'm trying out things that people say work, which I don't think do work. And one of those, those things that I've tried a couple of months ago is the intravenous strip. And I don't think it does work, by the way. So I wouldn't recommend it. What are you injecting yourself with, may I ask? Just vitamins. So it's just oh, like, a, like a vitamin, a vitamin. And that's all it usually is. It's like this vitamin K booster, typically given to kind of athletes and stuff who are kind of dehydrated. But yeah, it doesn't, it, it didn't make me feel any different. So for me, I'm not a late sleeper. So I do get up around 6 a.m. in the morning. That's my kind of natural body clock. I don't set the alarm. If I sleep later, that's okay. My morning routine is feed my dog first, if you can believe it, feed myself, bring her for a walk. And then I try to do kind of the important parts of the day. So it's a very cliche book, but I still like to kind of eat the frog, Brian Tracy, just get the worst bit of it over. And then depending on where I am, I'll work harder or I'll work less. So if it's a day where I don't have energy, I'll probably do very little. So I'll speed read some books to see if I want to really kind of go deeper in them. If I think that I can keep going on a project or if I have a deadline, because of my procrastination, I, I seem to be always up against deadlines, I will power through. But I typically work properly in the day if I get a productivity boost for about six and a half, seven hours. So not an extraordinarily long day. And then if I have the energy in the evening, I'll do my emails. And always, like you spoke about, before sleep, I try to move away from all of the electronics with blue lights, which for me has become harder. Now we're in the summertime and I have more downtime, but still managing to do it. Fantastic. Shall we do some quick fire? Yes, please. Great is the right answer. Okay. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh, it was my mom who really encouraged me to go to university with the level of consistency that I asked people to take small steps with. Your mother, by the way, sounds like a sort of a behavioural scientist in disguise in the book. I mean, she seems to have so much wisdom, whether she intended it at the time so precisely, but it seemed to have set you on your path so well. 
I feel she experimented to see what would actually work on me and what didn't and kind of double down the things that actually work. But yeah, I often kind of think about what would have happened if I had a different mother who was a bit more detached and I definitely wouldn't have gone to university. So and I definitely wouldn't have ended up where I am. So yes, that's definitely the kind of thing. And and gave a lot of her own time, which I think if we give time to anybody, you know, you are giving away kind of a part of yourself. So I, I would always be grateful for that. Yeah, I mean, she seemed to have offer you both carrot and stick. She was strict. So, I mean, in the book, I'm not sure that comes across, but she was strict at times. So compared to my friends who got to do lots more exciting nights out, I wasn't on those nights out. But now that I actually get to go on them, I don't actually want to go on them anyway. So it's weird when you become an adult, isn't it? Exactly. But look where you are now. It was all worth it, right? Yes, I'm chatting to you. It's fantastic. Exactly. Here we are. (laughs) Fantastic. Right. What's your most powerful memory? My most powerful memory is walking into a class in computer science and realizing that women didn't do computer science. And I think that's salient today because I've talked about it so much in talks. It wasn't on my mind so much kind of, you know, in, in the very early parts of my career. And I think it was the first time because in school, no one bothered to tell me that girls studied some things and didn't study others because nobody in our school went to university anyway. So I didn't have those kind of stigmas until I walked through the doors of university and saw the differences in in type of people. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. Oh, that's a good one. But I I mean, the book kind of said a lot, didn't it? It talks about me having type 1 diabetes. I'm incredibly messy. So in the book, I discussed the idea of decluttering, which is something that I'm constantly doing. So one of my, you asked about my routine in the day. At the moment, one of my routines in the day is to make sure that I actually throw something out so that I can actually declutter because we're moving house quite soon. But I feel in the book, I was quite open. So there isn't anything that's, yeah, I don't think I have too many skeletons. Aha. Okay. Which book do you gift most regularly? I do gift books and I change it. So recently I've been gifting a book by Ryan Holiday, which is on courage, basically. So if people haven't heard of him, Ryan Holiday is this amazing American writer who studies stoicism and really links it to kind of what kind of is going on in society today. He's a whole lot of books. If you're starting with him, I'd recommend The Daily Stoic. But his book on courage has been one of my favorites, actually. He's given me a new kind of take on what it actually means to be courageous and how to go about courage in ways that I haven't before. Oh, cool. I'm going to add that to my everlasting list of books. Yeah. (laughs) Which I'll then reopen at Christmas time and then... uh, (laughs) You can gift yourself. (laughs) Maybe I give myself. Yeah, exactly. Just no one else will give me a present. Okay. (laughs) Penultimately, what's your Desert Island music? Oh, Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac? Quick as a flash, Fleetwood Mac. It's been my one constant. So like books change, you know, memories change. But Fleetwood Mac is always what I would go to. So definitely Fleetwood Mac. Go Your Own Way maybe would be the title of your biography. Yeah, or thrown down, depending on yeah, what exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Depending on how things go over the next decade. Finally, winding down away from work, how do you spend your time? So I love taking walks in. We, we are very lucky. I live in the Southwest, so we're quite near Richmond Park, Bushy Park, the wetlands area. But if we can, getting out of London altogether and going for walks, kind of, you know, an hour, two hours drive away. So definitely walking. So anybody who has recommendations, please send them to me. I would love to get them. Certainly. Well, there's another request. If it's not about me plus, please send Grace your hiking and walking recommendations of Richmond, maybe the Surrey Hills as well, which is sort of fairly on your doorstep. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
And with that, Grace, let me thank you so much for joining me today. As you say, at the end of Think Big, there is, I think, something in the story for all of us, whether we're planning big career shifts or not. I think there's room for all of us to use our time better, however we choose to define that, to make our work living environments more appealing or to learn how to just roll with the punches when life deals us a duff hand. And as you also say, which I think is really important, that any of us reading the book and contemplating a career or lifestyle change is already hugely fortunate and privileged to have that free of choice. So, you know, when the chips are down, keep some perspective. I certainly hold that thought often, right? I think one we should all hold that thought more often. And finally, to add, Grace, that the work I think that you and your team do at the Inclusivity Initiative will make the workplace a richer place for us all, not just those who are smashing through the glass ceiling. So for that and everything you so generously shared today, thank you hugely. Amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> 